Let's pray. Lord, this morning, uh, it is our privilege to be in your presence. Um, We thank you for making a way that that is possible in Christ. Lord, as we sing about standing in awe of you, I'm reminded of last week's time in Isaiah 6, where you are seated on your throne, and the seraphim are standing, and they're worshiping, and some are flying, and they're worshiping, and they're in awe of you because they see your holiness. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see uh, your holiness, and that we would be in awe, and that that awe would result in lives uh, lived faithfully for your glory. Lord, I pray this morning for focus. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be uh, distracted by cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, schedules. I pray that as we consider your kingdom this morning, that you would inform us clearly by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I also pray uh, for Pastor Allgood over at Crossroads. I pray uh, that their time in worship is uh, wholehearted, that it's sweet, and that they're enjoying your presence as well. I pray for his marriage, that um, he and his wife are living together in such a way that someone could gaze upon their relationship and see realities of of the relationship between um, Jesus and the church. I pray that he is currently preaching or about to preach uh, a message that In the preparation of it, he has enjoyed his God, and he's been run through with truth, and he's eager to share what you have shown him. Lord, again for us this morning, I pray for Holy Spirit-given insight that we might more faithfully serve you, that you would teach us what it means to be servants of righteousness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Matthew 13. This is our, our uh, third week looking at the dynamics, biblical dynamics, between election and evangelism. In the first week, we considered the parable of the sower. Last week, we considered the purpose of parables and why they would be used anyway. And this week, we're going to look at the rest of that chapter. So turn to Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 24 and read through 50. Matthew 13, verse 24, he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took 
and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Listen to what the prophet says. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's our map for the morning. Our text is pretty broad, but we're going to do what Jesus did in the text. First, we're going to view the rest of these parables that he, that he has here from a bird's eye view. Intermingled in the parable of the weeds, which is going to be our main focus, are some shorter parables that Jesus spent less time on. So we're going to do the same thing this morning. We will address them briefly from a bird's eye view, but we'll spend less time on them. And then from that bird's eye view, we're going to narrow in on the parable of the weeds because Jesus spends more time on that parable. And then third, we're going to narrow in even more closely on the meaning of the parable of the weeds because that's what Jesus shares with his disciples so it's to explain the forward movement of his kingdom. I want you all to see this morning as, as we take those three steps, Jesus is aiming to explain the forward movement of his kingdom by the parable of the weeds and a few other short parables. So look back at verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. There's a note in the ESV study Bible that says with the parables... Jesus draws on various common experiences to describe the arrival and activity of the kingdom. What that means is that Jesus draws on these common experiences that, that would be understood as common to explain something that goes beyond common to very extraordinary. So he doesn't want you to get bogged up in the common. He wants to use the common as a means to show you something marvelous and extraordinary. So my hope for us this morning as we look at these parables, is that we could see beyond the field in the parable 
to the beautiful realities of the kingdom of God, of God that lie beyond that. So if you're asking, what am I looking for this morning? What am I listening for? Look at what he's saying that's common, but then look beyond that to the beautiful realities of the movement and the coming kingdom of God. So all these parables from the bird's eye view. Look at verse 34. 34 and 35 kind of capture what's going on here. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I want you to see that it is God's design for Jesus to open his mouth in such a way that Jesus utters, that what Jesus utters is truth about the movement of God's kingdom that has never been previously understood in such a manner. That's what we're encountering in the scripture this morning. Jesus is opening his mouth by God's design to explain the movement of God's kingdom in a way that had never been previously understood in such a manner. So our bird's eye view is this. In short, Jesus is saying, I know that with the prophecies of a Messiah and King, you are expecting mighty movement and earthly rule. Jesus is going to address what he thought they might be expecting with these parables. He says, I know you were expecting me to show up and just absolutely lay the smack down. You were expecting me to show up and full on throw it on the ground. I know the oppression from Rome is great and you want to be delivered. And I know that you guys are really ready for the Messiah to come and just clean house. But Jesus goes on to say, Instead, as the Messiah, I liken my kingdom to a seed that is faithfully sown yet largely rejected. My kingdom's like the mustard seed that has its small beginnings, yet ends up like a healthy tree, and like the mustard seed, it will take time for my kingdom to grow. My kingdom's like leaven, where you start out with just a little bit of it, but eventually everything will be leavened. I'll get my glory. My kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field rather than a treasure just laid in your lap. And in your joy, you should be willing to part with everything that was once dear to be a part of my kingdom. My kingdom is like a pearl of great value that if you're the kind of person who seeks fine pearls, you would give all you have for, for only this one. And my kingdom's like a net full of fish where one day, but not necessarily today, the bad will be separated from the keeper's. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like a wheat field that is intermingled with weeds. Yes, they need to be separated, but not today. They must first grow up together. All of these things are truths that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. And it's the Messiah himself who is breaking into the scene and saying, it may not be what you thought. It's better. And we're going to see how it's better as this unfolds. What Jesus is saying is it's better. And frankly, better takes patience. Better takes love. Better takes long-suffering. And better takes great trust in your Messiah. Something we need to note here is that in the explanation, Jesus does not find it necessary to remove the mystery. When you're explaining the gospel and the way that God is to people, do you try to jump to that point where like, I just don't want there to be any mystery. I just want to make it very clear. That's unnecessary. Jesus does not find it necessary to remove the mystery. When you're explaining the kingdom of God and the salvation in Christ to someone, it's not necessary to eliminate or remove mystery. 
If there are not parts of God that are not beautifully mysterious to us, then God must be largely unknown to us. He is God. We are not. We stand in awe of Him. And we see this playing out as Jesus shares the parable. That was our bird's eye view of all these intermingled parables. Now we're going to focus in on the parable of the weeds where Jesus spends most of His time. Look at verses 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And look, pay attention to all of the points that he shares. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest in gathering them, the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we're just going to take it at face value and look at what we have so far. At face value, what do we have so far? There's a sower who sows good seed, which we know to be wheat, in a field which we know to be a wheat field. But something else is going on too. In the good wheat field, we see that an enemy is sowing weeds among the wheat. And they're wheat-like weeds. The servants are concerned about this, and they question the master. And what the master does is he sets the servants' hearts towards faithfulness, lest they be guilty of making a grave mistake. This is what we might call the first glance at the parable. Now we're going to take that third step and narrow in on the meaning of it. Like our previous parable, each has its first part, and then it has its counterpart, where Jesus gives clarity to the disciples privately in the house, but not to the crowd necessarily, because parables are achieving many things as they're being shared, much like when we share the gospel. Focusing specifically on the meaning of the parables, this is where Jesus gives us the greatest insight as to the movement and the coming of the kingdom of God. So let's pay close attention. Verse 24 and then 36 through 38a, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And look at verse 36. This is where Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you insight. These are things that have otherwise been previously unknown since the foundation of the world. This is big. Pay attention, disciples. 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, what did that mean? Can you explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field? And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Pay close attention here. We don't want to mix our parables and our metaphors. Essentially, what God is saying is the metaphor is changing in this parable, so don't miss it. God's saying, you have a field. In the parable of the sower, your field is the souls of other people, and you share the gospel. That's your seed. He says, you have a field, but I, God, have a bigger field. And what he says is, my field spans time, my field spans generations, and my field spans the whole earth. What God is saying to them is, I sow you and you sow the gospel. 
This is the forward movement of the kingdom of God. This is what your life is completely about if you're an ambassador of Christ speaking what he has told you to speak. God says, I sow you, and you sow the gospel. When I created time, when I, God, creator, created time, this was part of my plan. My seed is a people, and my people have a message. This is the first aspect for us to consider. The second aspect for us to consider in God explaining the forward movement of His kingdom is the activity of the disciples. Look at what the disciples do. It so informs the way disciples are supposed to move. At first, they just look kind of foolish, but that's not what's happening here. Look what they do. What did they do? They heard the original teaching. Then they went and they thought about it. If we could get that down, I think the church would be much more beautiful. They heard the teaching, they went, and they thought about it. This is one of the disciples' roles in the forward movement of the kingdom. We're going to go to two satellites to better understand this. The first satellite is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn there, please. They heard the teaching, they went, and they thought about it. If we could get everyone to do that every week, we would grow spiritually. One of the ways God causes growth. 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. Now remember, the, the letters to Timothy are from Paul, and he's informing Timothy on this is the way the church works. Essentially, just as Jesus shares the parables and goes and talks to the disciples and says, this is the forward movement of my kingdom, Paul's doing the same thing with Timothy. Timothy, this is the forward movement of God's kingdom. This is how it works. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, he says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's some pretty cool dynamics there. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is part of the forward movement of the kingdom. Another way to say this is, anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. So if you have deemed it worthwhile to drag your rear end out of bed, show up here with all the kids... And listen, know that it doesn't stop there. Anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. And in that thinking, it is the Lord who will give you understanding. Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm a really good teacher. Just listen and you'll get it. He says, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. And understanding isn't terminal with you. It's meant to lead you to movement and changes in your life that more fully display the glory of God so that others might gaze upon the holiness of God in your life. That's what it means in Hebrews. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. This is why we urge you not to just listen for an hour on Sunday morning, but to go and walk in this. If you ask that question, what does it mean to walk in it? I I hear that all the time. This is what it means. Part of the walking is thinking about what you have heard. If it's worth listening to, it's worth thinking about. And we need each other for this. This is why our aim is that every member of the body is a part of a small group where you're going and you're thinking through this together so that we might walk in it. The very means by which God gives understanding is often through other people. It happens for me all the time. His people are vessels of mercy, often poured out in the way of giving understanding to each other via the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we hear it and then we get it, 
then we can walk in it. And that's what it means to be doers of the Word and not just hearers of the Word. Because if we're just hearers of the Word, we're hypocrites. But if we're doers of the Word, we're being faithful disciples. If it's worth listening to, it's worth thinking about. Another point to consider here is that it's first... Now, I'm sharing this with you because I'm hoping that you share the gospel with people, and however they react, I want you to move accordingly, according to God's plan. So, consider here that it's first a lack of understanding that leads to greater understanding. To me, this is great news. It's first a lack of understanding that leads to greater understanding. Forward movement of the kingdom. When someone doesn't understand what you're saying at first, don't get depressed and bummed and upset about it. Jesus didn't. Rather, be patient and be ready to give an account for the reason for the hope that you have, and be gentle. Don't let your emotions define your reality to where you're so bummed you get upset and short with people. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I don't get it. Can you, can you explain this to me? That's a good thing. I hope for more of that. Imagine if Jesus' response to the disciples would have been, I'm done. You guys are idiots. I'm the alpha teacher. Really? Do I need to repeat myself? You didn't get it the first time? Oh, do I need to put it another way? That's not what he did. Why? Because the reason he didn't respond like that is that a fruit of the Spirit is patience. He is the Alpha Teacher. So if Jesus was okay with repeating himself, I think we should be okay with repeating ourselves where it's necessary. Turn to the second satellite, which is Jude 17. It's right before Revelation. It only has one chapter, so it's just Jude 17 through Jude 23. This is a call to persevere for believers who are trying to rightly be faithful in the forward movement of God's kingdom. A call to persevere. Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And look what it says here in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The idea of being a faithful disciple that might snatch one out of the fire is very, very starkly different from God will save his God, who who he wants to save. Very different. Snatching them out of the fire with what? The gospel. And, And who do we be patient with and have mercy on? Those who doubt. See that there is a difference between the doubter and the scoffer, please. See that there is a difference between the doubter and the scoffer. A scoffer aims to divide, while a doubter is often just aiming at greater understanding. Just because they're a doubter does not necessarily mean they will be a believer, but at least they're listening. Are you willing to have mercy on the doubter and work with them against their doubts? 
Do you realize that when you're being equipped for the work of ministry, you are being equipped to do such a thing? Are you willing to pray for them and patiently endure through a season where they're at least willing to listen and patiently, um, though they might still have confusion, are you willing to talk with them? Do you see them as close to the fire of God's judgment and yourself as having the possibility to snatch them out of the fire with the gospel? See, questions like the ones the disciples ask and even requests like the ones the disciples made are not bad. I would offer that something we're seeing in the parables this morning is that healthy evangelism embraces good questions. So if you're getting a lot of questions, that's good. Be ready to give answers because you are spending time faithfully in the Word and listening to it and then going and thinking about it. Turn back to Matthew 13. Look at verse 25, and then we'll look at 38b through 39a. What is the kingdom of God like in the parable of the weeds? Verse 25, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Verse 38b, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, I want you to remember that the field that Jesus is referring to is the world. That's the field that Jesus is referring to. It's the world. And within the world, we have children of God, sown by God, referred to as wheat, and we have children of the evil one, sown by the devil, referred to as weeds or wheat-like weeds. First, I really want you to just take in this reality because it's pretty hard. What Jesus is proclaiming here is He's uttering things previously unknown in such a manner. Jesus is saying that everyone in the world falls into one of two categories. Everyone in the world falls into one of two categories. Now, as a people who are very American, very individualistic, we hate being categorized, don't we? Like, you just say that and people are turned off. In fact, you might be sitting there thinking, who does this joker think he is? I'm just trying to read my Bible faithfully. What Jesus is saying is everyone in the world falls into one of two categories, sown by God or sown by the devil. Now, that has a great effect and impact on you as a disciple in the forward movement of the kingdom of God. Two types of people, sown by God or sown by the devil. So I want you to know that this is the world that you live in. It's God's field created by God, and some of the people in it are God's people, equipped with God's message. And after the field was created by the Creator God, the evil one also sowed some seeds in the same field. And both the wheat and the weeds are designed by God to grow together until the day of judgment. Now, let's take a closer look at the weeds, because this could be confusing. They're, in fact, wheat-like weeds, even more confusing. Your sub, uh, you might have a note in your Bible. A lot of the ESVs have the note. It's called, they're called darnel or darnel, depending on which syllable you put the emphasis on. And what it is, is wheat-like weeds. So, the weeds that look like what? Wheat. 
This is troubling. This is how the devil works. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Wheat like weeds. This is how the devil works. Now, in all this talk about the devil, the aim isn't to get you all, ooh, heebie-jeebied out, ooh, this is the way the devil works. I want, I want God's disciples to be well-informed. Jesus is finding it necessary to share this with his disciples. I think it's important for us to, to see uh, the importance of it. And 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen helps us with this. 14, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15 says, And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What this means is that Satan is masquerading as an angel of light is what some versions say. Masquerading is, is a good word. He's masquerading as an angel of light. And his servants, Satan's servants, known in Matthew 13 as sons of the evil one, follow suit. And they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness or wheat like weeds. Now, how can one disguise themselves as a servant of righteousness when actually being quite the opposite? How do they do that? Well, you look at the servants of righteousness, and you do what they do. That's, that's how you disguise, any disguise. You study what you're wanting to look like, and you go do that. Do you realize what this means? Do you realize what God is saying about the dynamics of His kingdom in this statement? This is going to result in an often confusing and mixed congregation. Go with me here. The parable is referring to the field as the world, not the church. The parable is referring to the field as the world, not the church. But if the sons of the evil one want to be wheat-like and disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, then they will say, oh, the wheat go to church? Then we go to church. Do you see? It's not a, not a hard jump. It's quite logical. They'll say, oh, the wheat go to church? Then us wheat-like weeds who are disguised as servants of righteousness, we'll go to church. And the similarities don't stop there. Oh, you have preaching? We have preaching. Oh, you have worship and song? We sing too. Oh, you have social justice and outreach? Well, so do we. If you picture the sons of the evil one as having horns and a pitchfork, you're sadly mistaken. They're sly. Their aim is to divide, and they do so by trying to look like children of God. It might be that the only thing that is missing is the part about Jesus. That's why it's so important for the servants, the true servants of righteousness, not to leave out the part about Jesus. True servants of righteousness, please don't leave out the part about Jesus. Don't just help people and then not tell them the part about Jesus. Don't share that they need forgiveness, but not explain why and how. True servants of righteousness do not leave out the part about Jesus. 
There's a few things for us to consider here. Two dynamics. First is the dynamic that will result in a mixed nature of the congregation. Do you realize that it is the mixed nature of the congregation that many professing Christians, it keeps many professing Christians from being a part of a local church? What I mean is that in Hunt County, we've knocked on every door this side of 30. I haven't met anyone who says, I hate Jesus, I hate God, leave me alone. Almost everyone is completely square with Jesus in their minds. Yet 95% of them have no use for the local church. And usually their excuse goes something like this. You know, I look upon the church. They will gaze upon the church and their eyes drawn to the ones who are hypocrites and divisive. You've heard this. You talk to people, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have no use for the bride. Yet they look upon the church and their eyes drawn to the ones who are hypocrites and divisive. Yet... I would offer, your eye might be being drawn to one who's not even a child of God, according to this text, but a son of the evil one, put there by the devil for the very purpose of distracting you. Their very aim is to be divisive. Don't fall for it. Or maybe they are sons of God, and maybe they are being divisive, but they're not yet rightly repentant. I'm not going to blame all division on the devil, but the rest of it can certainly be blamed on the flesh. And whether it is a son of the evil one or a son of God you are troubled by, the only remedy is Jesus. The gospel holds the remedy. You have to see that the church is the bride of Christ, and you do not keep yourself pure by separating yourself from Christ's bride. For then you're aiming to be pure for no purpose. The aim of our purity is the joy of the bridegroom. The second dynamic to consider is found in verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, well, then do you want us to go and gather them? Wheat like weeds in the middle of wheat is a problem, is it not? Do you want us to go and gather them? You may realize In fact, these parables may be the first realization you're having in this, but you may realize that the world you live in and even the church community, the Hunt County church community, you may be thinking, if that's true, if what these parables, if Jesus is telling the truth, you may be thinking and realizing that you are part of a church community that is at least in part filled with these schemers who oppose God, wheat like weeds, masquerading as servants of righteousness. That might make you upset. You might say, fake preaching? Fake worship? Fake caring about others just for the sake of an evil end? Fake outreach? All of these similarities, yet you leave out the part about Jesus? All because you want to look like you're one of us? You want to look like you're one of God's? Yet your aim is to divide the people of God and blemish the name of God? Well, let's be done with these people right now. How dare they? People have given their very lives for this kingdom. People have been rejected by their families for this kingdom. And these imposters make a mockery of it? God, do you want us to gather them up? That's what's being said here. Look at Jesus' response when they offer up such a solution. 
At first glance, you might be thinking, yeah, enough of that. Look at verses 29 through 30 in Matthew 13. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And look at 39b. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Those masking, masquerading as servants of righteousness with their daddy, the devil, who's disguised as an angel of light, there will be a reckoning. Christ is returning. But what Jesus is saying here is that that welling up inside of you to try and figure out who's really my child and who's not, that welling up inside of you to say, saved, lost, sheep, goat, good, bad, even if that welling up inside of you is driven by, I don't want the church to be blemished. I want justice on behalf of my great God who is holy. What Jesus is saying is you have to let that go. Can you believe that? Jesus is saying you have to let that go. Jesus is saying that you should not and in fact cannot by His design truly know the difference between real wheat and wheat-like weeds until the time of the harvest. What Jesus is saying is, in pulling up what you think is a weed, you may unknowingly uproot, uproot one of my children, and that's not okay with me. You may think you know the difference between the two, but by my design, you don't. Jesus is saying, when you try to finally and decisively say that someone is certainly saved or certainly unsaved, then you are disobediently taking upon yourselves the work that Jesus has set aside for the angels upon His return. Your focus should be on the fact that Jesus will return. And until He does, He requires you to share the gospel. Now, if any of you are thinking ahead a little bit, you might be thinking, whoa, Scott. So I, I can't know? And the result is I'm just supposed to let people do whatever they want? Are you telling me that I'm supposed to just allow people to say and act contrary to the gospel while proclaiming to be believers and I can't do anything about it just because of this parable? Are you telling me that I'm supposed to just let the church become ugly and blemished and a whorish bride until Christ's return just, just because I can't know the difference? Just let people do what they want? No, that's not what we're saying. It is the gospel that brings people into the fold, and it is the gospel that keeps the bride pure. It is within the gospel that we find a need for church discipline, so that when one is acting in a way contrary to the gospel, when they're saying, I'm a follower of Christ, but they're acting contrary to what Christ would, would want for His disciples, then we can deal with it in a way that is ultimately and hopefully redemptive. But to just want to cut them off, 
and say no more, while they still have a borrowed breath, there is still hope for them in Christ. And you cannot know the difference between the wheat-like weed and the weed. So this process of church discipline helps us to deal with situations where someone is proclaiming to be a believer and yet acting very contrary. We deal with that in a way that's redemptive. That's why the last step of church discipline is not removal, but hopefully restoration. That's one of the sweetest things I've experienced in eight years here. Restoration like that. What I think Jesus is saying is we need the gospel for conversion and we need it for perseverance. We need the gospel to begin our journey of faith and we need the gospel to finish our journey of faith. In a sense, in Matthew 13, it seems like Jesus is saying, know that, but focus on this. That's what I feel like Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want you to have a knowledge that goes beyond what you can actually do. Because that makes you trust me, because I'm God and you're not. So I, I, I see Jesus saying, know that over here, but you focus on this right here in front of you. An example would be, know that I am sovereign to save who I please. No one's going to weasel their way into the kingdom. But you, while knowing that I am sovereign to save who I please, you, you focus on this charge that I've laid on your life to share the gospel faithfully and to love both saved sinners and unsaved sinners with the truth. That's your focus. Know that I'm sovereign to save who I please. You do this. Know that there are wheat like weeds, but you focus on sharing the good seed of the gospel when faithfully sown has the effect I want it to have. Know that my angels will pull up those weeds and throw them into the fiery furnace, but you, you focus on living out the gospel and sharing the gospel, because by my design, you are not allowed to know the difference between wheat and wheat-like weeds. They look very similar. I want to go again and consider Isaiah. See, something that Isaiah said last week, all the sermons are online, listen if you didn't, but last week, Isaiah said something that bleeds into this week and helps to inform us. What did Isaiah say when when he went before the, when he was caught up in a vision before the Lord, he said, woe is me, and I'm a man of unclean lips. But it didn't stop there. What Isaiah said was, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Hear this. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So for Isaiah, when he looked upon the holiness of God, he didn't just say, oh, I'm unclean. But what he did was he said, if the holiness of God is this great, then yeah, I'm unclean, but everyone's unclean. Yeah, I have unclean lips, but I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is a really good description of the field in Matthew 13. A field full of wheat who have unclean lips, and a field full of weeds who have unclean lips. This reality of the world that he lives in and the people he is in the midst of would be a catalyst for Isaiah in evangelism and it should be for you too. Do you know where you dwell? The answer is a a lost world. In the midst of wheat that needs the gospel, and in the midst of weeds that need the gospel. In the midst of a people of unclean lips, not just a people with unclean lips, a people of unclean lips. It's more of a title than a description. You can hear Isaiah saying, 
I don't want to be the only one to look upon the holiness of God. See, what, Isaiah, what happens to Isaiah is he's caught up in this vision and he says, my hope is that they too, the people I dwell in the midst of, my hope is that they too will be able to say, my eyes have seen the king. Your hope should be that as you share the gospel, other people will say, my eyes have seen the king. But we know like Isaiah that in order for woe to be turned into joy, there must be forgiveness of guilt and atonement for sin. And so it becomes imperative that I tell them about Jesus because forgiveness and atonement is nowhere else to be found. We want people to feel the hopelessness of woe is me. We want people in, in, in the field, whether it's a, a son of God who's wheat or a son of the evil one who's a wheat like weed, we want everyone to feel the woe is me burden and weight. And it's even okay to let someone sit with it for a while and let it really sink in. That's why this whole three-minute evangelism, get it done, get them saved, doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not saying God won't use it, but here what I'm seeing is that we want everyone to feel the hopelessness of woe is me. And it's even okay to let someone sit with it for a while and really sink in, but it is utter cruelty to not eventually get to the part about Jesus. It's utter cruelty to not eventually get to the part about Jesus. It's utter cruelty to leave someone forever in the dark. Do you realize it's the job of Satan to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel? It's not your job. For you, when you are faithful in evangelism and you share the good news and you share why it's good news, then God who said, let light shine out of darkness, may just very well shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of himself in the face of Jesus Christ. You've not heard better news than that today. That's good news. I feel like this is very much worth mentioning. I want to shoot an elephant. There are many in Reformed circles who feel that the gospel is this. There are many in Reformed circles who feel the gospel is, you are wicked, your heart is deceitful, God's wrath is upon you. Prove that you are chosen by embracing the doctrine of election. Does that sound crooked to anybody or awry, not quite right? Prove that you're chosen by embracing the doctrine of election? This is taking a doctrine too far. This is why so many fear the doctrine of election. This is why people who love Jesus very much hear about election, they're like, no, oh, no, I'm not with a 10-foot pole because I don't want to become unevangelistic. They think that embracing such a doctrine will inevitably make you unevangelistic. So how is this taking the doctrine of election too far? Well, first I want you to see that the doctrine of election is not the gospel. You have no hope of being saved outside of God who causes growth, period. There's nothing you can do on your own to reconcile your relationship with God. It can only happen in Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of election is not the gospel. To share the gospel with someone is never simply to explain a doctrine. The gospel is that in your sin, you have wronged God and you are separated from Him. It is only in Christ that you can be reconciled to Him. Repent of your sin, stop putting your faith in other things, and put your faith in Christ who's the way, the truth, and the life. That's the gospel. We're not urging people to be Baptist. We're not urging people to be Reformed. We're not urging people to put their faith in the extent of the atonement, limited or unlimited. I have strong convictions on all those things. 
but we are urging them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because salvation can never be found in a doctrine or a theology. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In Matthew 13, the gospel proves to be achieving two things. I want you to see that when the gospel is shared, according to Matthew 13, in this kingdom that is like a a field, wheat field full of wheat and wheat like weeds, that the gospel, when shared, is achieving two things. And both of those things fall under the heading of God's judgment. Now, this is getting as specific as we will get this morning. We started at the bird's eye view. We narrowed in a little. We narrowed in a little. And this is as specific as we're going to get. So pay close attention to what's happening here. Two things are accomplished, and they fall under the heading of God's judgment. First, for the sons of God, you share the gospel, and they have ears to hear. Upon Christ's return, God judges them. And Christ's righteousness is counted as their righteousness, thereby resulting in forgiveness of guilt, atonement for sins, and acceptance by God that they may gaze upon His holiness forever. That's the outcome for the sons of God. For the children of the evil one, you share the gospel, and they either don't understand it, as we learned two weeks ago, because one, either they just don't understand it, their minds are blinded, or they don't persevere in it. Maybe it sprouts up, but there's no depth of soil. Or for the sons of the evil one, they hear it and persevere in it for a little while, but it's choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, like the thorns. Upon Christ's return, God judges them, and Christ's righteousness is not counted as theirs. All they are left with is unforgiven guilt, an unatoned for sin. They're rejected by God. The wages of sin is death. The result is eternal separation and suffering. So for those of you who think that everyone deserves to be saved, and that sense of entitlement for other people is your only encouragement in evangelism, if you say, I am going to be evangelistic because everyone deserves to be saved, I would offer, don't forget the mixed field that you live in. Don't forget the mixed field that you live in. You dwell according to Jesus and according to Isaiah, but most importantly, Jesus. You dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, we already know that it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? So unclean lips can only be the result of unclean hearts. You see that? If you dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, unclean lips out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, so unclean lips are the result of an unclean heart. And God only offers a new heart in Christ. You can't muster it. Make sure that you share Christ with the right motive, because there are many who are steeped in what they're calling evangelism, but the motive's wrong. It can never be because you think someone deserves it. If that's the case, you don't get it. You share because you know how horribly no one deserves it. I want to share this with you because you don't deserve it. Guess what? I'm surrounded by goodness in my life, by the Lord and the movement of the Holy Spirit, through my forgiveness of sins. I get to see God for who He is, and I know what my eternal destiny is, and I don't deserve it. And I'm going to share this with you not because I think you deserve it, but because I know how horribly you don't. 
The only hope is in Christ. So election and evangelism are never opposed to each other. And we need a way of thinking that rightly and biblically allows for both. When you have understanding on one biblical thing more than another biblical thing, you can't throw it by the wayside because it's a biblical thing, breathed out by God, so that you might be equipped and competent for every good work. You will only reap what you sow. But I think what we've seen in Matthew 13 is you will not always reap what you sow. I hear that subtle, you always reap what you sow. Really? Because I... I don't see that here. You will only reap what you sow, but you will not always reap what you sow. And without sowing the seed of the gospel, you can never expect that 160 or 30-fold yield of one who actually hears and sees and perceives. You can't expect that to happen in some other way. But just because you sow does not mean a guaranteed result. So you only reap what you sow, but you don't always reap what you sow. And when you become disheartened, frustrated, and bogged down by what seems to be rejection of the message... Gaze again upon the holiness of God. Trust God to accomplish his will. Allow the angels to do their work at the close of the age. And you be faithful right now to walk in a manner worthy of the call that's been placed on your life. Let's pray. Lord, my, my prayer is that we would have understanding while not having to get rid of mystery. So Lord, if any of us are sitting here thinking, man, that's hard, I pray that we would do what, what, what you led your disciples to do, is, is to hear this and, and go think about it. Lord, anything... Um, worth listening to, is thinking about, and, and you have spoken to us in parables this morning, and the purpose of that is to utter things hidden since the foundation of the world, and to know that we could have greater insight and understanding so as to walk more faithfully and put your glory on display, that's our created purpose. I pray that we would not want anything else. Lord, there's so much confusion when it comes to seeing these two things, election and evangelism, sitting side by side. Please, Enlarge our minds, allow for more biblical thinking. Let us not be worldly, but let us be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can know what your will is and we can walk in it for your glory. Lord, I pray for both saved sinners and unsaved sinners. I pray this morning for the saved. I pray that the saved would persevere in their faith by clinging to the gospel and gazing upon the holiness of God and not opting out of church and not opting out of preaching and not opting out of all of these things that you say are necessary for the forward movement of your kingdom. I pray that the saved would be faithful in their salvation. Lord, I pray for the unsaved. My heart is burdened that this community would not just be a dull, deaf, blind spiritually hardened community. My hope is that the church would push back darkness by living faithfully. Lord, help us to faithfully sow and water and plant. But let us never think that we can cause growth. Our only hope for growth in the life of an unbeliever is you. And we humbly submit to you.
Lord, my prayer is that you would save many, that you would draw many to yourselves, to yourself. I pray that you would reveal the truth about you and, the, and your holiness to, to many, even this morning. You allow us to let our requests be made known. I want many to know who you are and thereby give you more glory. I want the result to be more glory for my great and glorious and holy God. And in the same breath, I pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, please help us to be faithful. Please help us not to abandon your word in any way. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it was November of uh, 92... 1992, that is. Uh, I was on a ship off the coast of Somalia in a uh, one of the larger rooms that were available to meet in, meeting with the company commanders, platoon commanders, and um, staff NCOs about the land in Somalia. And um, I remember our battalion commander giving us an operation order, and I remember the sobriety. That nobody's token and joking. Nobody's thinking about their, you know, girlfriend back home. Um, none of those distractions. It was really they're realizing we're about to engage something that's um, important, uh, dangerous, real, um, kind of the reality of that set in and that operation order setting. And that's kind of the way these last three sermons feel for me. There's a sobriety in them because we're about a kingdom work. I mean, the kingdom advancement. And I, I hope you sense that sobriety. If you've missed any of these last three sermons, I encourage you to engage them. And I encourage you to do like Scott was talking this morning. Think on them. One of the things that I guarantee was a reality of that operation order is if you were confused on something, you wouldn't leave the room content with being confused about it because what it might mean is somebody gets shot. It's not supposed to get shot. <laughs> I mean, that, there's too much at stake to walk out of there or to go on and engage without understanding. So there's key, that it's key to walk through what you've heard and talk through, whether it's small groups or home Bible studies, ideally both. That's the cream right there is engaging small groups of the people of God and then in family, at the family level, saying, what does this mean? I think probably the most prominent thing that, it, that has struck me in these last three sermons is realizing that sharing the gospel is not just about folks being saved, but it's also the administration of justice on the earth. As much as some are being saved, some are rejecting it, and that that's bringing and identifying judgment. We're part of that work. We've been called to be part of that work. That's pretty crazy. I have a couple of thoughts I want to share with you for the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, what I'm going to do uh, over the next few months as I have an opportunity to share kind of devo devotional preparation, and it's not even quite devotional, it's beyond that, preparation for the supper, uh, is I'm going to walk through what the supper is. Again, little sm small bites, pun intended, of what the supper actually is. So this morning, just for the next couple of minutes, I want to share a couple of passages. It's not long, so guys, you don't have to worry about me leaving you stranded up here forever. Um, but the first thing I want to gauge this week is the Lord's Supper is a supper of provision. 
to share a couple of passages with you. Genesis chapter 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Listen to the key phrases. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Behold, look around you guys. You're surrounded by food. Chapter 2, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made it made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a potential to walk away from that passage, really focusing more on what you're not supposed to eat from, not realizing these guys were surrounded by buku trees with tons of fruit hanging from every branch. And God is saying, Adam and Eve, behold, take and eat. Enjoy the fruit, again, pun intended, of my work. Enjoy the fruit of my work. The whole story happens a few chapters later, again, in a recreative work. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, watch, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a recreative work. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon every, uh, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Behold, Noah, take and eat. One more passage. The nation of Israel has wandered in the desert 40 years. They're going into the promised land. Joshua chapter 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. It sounds like take and eat. Step into this land. I'm going to provide for you a new land. Something I earned 
for you. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It sounds like, smells like, behold, Joshua, Look over there off of Mount Nebo into the land that you're going to go into. You're going to cross that Jordan on dry ground. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take and eat. I've done the work for you. Go enjoy the fruit of my work. And what I want you to know while we step to this table, while this table comes to you, when we dine on the Lord's Supper, we enjoy the fruit of His labor. Jesus did the work so that we not only will enter a new land, but that we have become a new people. When we dine on this supper, we enjoy the bold acts. The juice yet. <laughs> not just yet. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's enjoying the fruit of His work. Confidence to enter the holy place by His work, by His blood, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh that was torn, mind you. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, there's three let us's that I want us to engage as we take this cup. The first, let us. Let us draw near with a heart that's true and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As you take this cup, realize that you approach that throne of God, not because you're good, but because you wear His goodness. So if you're thinking, man, I have really fumbled this week. I'm a mess right now. Well, look around you. You may not realize it, but so are the rest of us. We all need that righteous clothing that's the clothing of another. So put that on with full assurance. By faith, wear his righteous clothing. That's the first let us. The second let us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. As you take and drink this cup, know that we have a God that's going to follow through on his promise to save us because of this work of another. Man, that's sweet. Third, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The third let us, in response to this work that we're enjoying, this work that was already done for us, is be part of the people of God. Engage each other. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Man, that's what it's all about. Let's take this and join those three let us's. Dear God, it's by the finished work of your son, by the plan that you put in place before time even began, that we enjoy your presence this morning, that we enjoy access. We approach your throne boldly by the finished and righteous work of another. We count ourselves unworthy, and we count ourselves crazy blessed by that finished work. We're so thankful that we've been invited to eat a meal with the living God because of that righteous work. 
Lord, we continue this morning in worship and giving. I pray that you'll find a people that are open-handed, big-hearted, responsive to needs, that are eager to give back to you how much, you, just a portion of what you've given to us. Thankful that we have this opportunity. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll have a seat. Last night as I was up here going over the sermon, How Great Thou Art, was just like I couldn't stop from singing. I sounded like a crazy person in here by myself, top of my lungs, singing How Great Thou Art, but you're exactly right. It's a perfectly appropriate response when you gaze upon the holiness of God. A lot of times when we have a sermon on evangelism, it's uh, sermons on evangelism have a tendency towards method, 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 method. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? But it was very necessary for us to take the weeks we've taken to see what, what is God doing? What's God's plan? What's the field? What's the seed? What are the dynamics? What, how are we to move forward faithfully if we're going to be in accordance with God in the forward movement of the kingdom? And so it, it's never appropriate to say, what, well, what are we going to do until we see, well, what is it that God's doing? And so in these three weeks, I do feel like the Lord has given us insight and understanding um, into the forward movement of his kingdom. And that is, as, as leadership, as elders, as small group shepherds, as deacons, as staff, um, as we have, as we're looking at this, I, I believe that there are some ways, Henry, be quiet, come on. Um, I believe that there are some ways that God is trying to inform our method. And it's not, we're not going to get schemy about it. But I believe that um, given what we have here, that there are some ways particularly via our small groups, where we can more faithfully engage a very lost community with the bright light of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to send out an email this week explaining some of, maybe some of the method response to this. And I encourage you to continue to go and think of what you heard. It's worth listening to. It's worth thinking about. Now Ben has to come and ask you all for some money. He shot the wheels off everything I'm about to say, so, wow, wow. I have to stand up here so I have more authority, I guess. Restore my authority. Um, you know, I, too, I too think it's appropriate as, as we've kind of concluding in three parts on evangelism. If you've been walking with us or if you've been here maybe for the first time and you're like, man, I have something going on, there's something at work here that I'm not familiar with and I want to be part of this thing with God, whatever it is that Jesus has achieved, whatever he's done, I need some righteous clothing because I know I don't have any on my own. If you need to understand what it means to believe and follow Christ, man, I, I'm here. Scott's here. Chances are you can turn to nearly anyone else in this sanctuary unless, uh, um, it's funny calling it a sanctuary, it's just a room. And, and you can turn to anyone else in this room unless they're wondering the same thing and get an answer. But man, I encourage you that Satan is at work to snatch that seed away. So if that seed is on the soil of your heart and you're like, man, I want to respond to that in some way. I want to step out in obedience and response and learn what it means to worship God. Then follow through on that. It won't be a bother. Trust me. <laughs> That'd be the greatest privilege in the world to be part of that with you, to show you what it means to follow Christ. I encourage you, man, follow, follow through if you're being led in that direction. Uh, you see there's tons of work going on out here. 
this basically, we have the resources to finish all this work, but realize that a big part of what we're doing out here is also to renovate or convert this space into children's space. In some ways, this church is growing most, I guess, exponentially through the nurseries. It is crazy. I mean, it's very uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply church. It is. And that's good. That's the cultural mandate. We read it three different times this morning. You know, subdue it by having a bunch of babies. That's um, the nurseries are really in our kids' space is really at capacity. So uh, right now we need about fifty to $60,000 to complete this work. We've got approval from the city and we're ready to go. So in the next eight weeks as a body, we want to come up with whatever that is. What that works out to per family, if we were only considering member families, and I know there are some other families that are going to want to participate in that, but if we were only considering member families, if every member family was involved, that would be about a total of about four dollars to $500 over the course of the next eight weeks. I'm not talking each week. I mean, that's, that's how it breaks down. When you really look at it like that, you go, oh, well, that's a lot. I'm going to have to do without something. I mean, I don't know that anybody that has four or $500 in their pocket, in their lint. You know, oh, there's a piece of lint and there's $500. I don't know anybody that's in that kind of situation. So it's going to be a challenge for everybody. But if every member family participated, then that's what it would break down to. So some of you are going to be disobedient to only give that much. And others of you are going to be like widows might crazy sacrificial obedient to participate to that amount. So I encourage you to pray through, not whether you're going to participate or not, but to what extent. The elders are presenting to you two important needs right now. And one is water in Kazakhstan. Is to convert this building into children's space over the next eight weeks um, to the tune of about fifty dollars to $60,000. And I'm going to share one last passage with you before I close this out this morning. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This whole chapter that we've been engaging the last three weeks is about how the kingdom of God works and how the kingdom of God works is, is made up of kingdom of God people that have a kingdom character that's a pearly character that says this kingdom work is so good that I'll go sell stuff to be part of it. So if you're thinking, man, I don't have four or $500. How can I produce that? Go sell something. Don't do something you're planning to do. Serious. I mean, <laughs> that's what sacrifice is by nature. It's a sacrifice. If you got four or five hundred dollars in your pocket lent, that's not an offering. Sacrificial offering is something that costs you something. I'll not offer up to God that which costs me nothing. So I'm telling you, man, raise up. Raise up on these two needs. Be dangerous. I don't know how I'm going to make it the next month. Good. Let God make up the difference. You're not going to go hungry if you're part of this people. Trust me. The deacons wouldn't let you. Trust me. Trust God, better yet. Trust God. So even though Scott shot the wheels off everything I was saying, I hope you all get that. <laughs> Y'all stand and I'll dismiss this. God, you are good. We are so thankful that we are part of something, a kingdom that's advancing, that's at work. What a crazy privilege to have purpose. Oh, man, what sweet privilege to have purpose and meaning 
My life needs that. Our lives need that. We're so thankful that we're part of an ultimate reality of a good God that's made a way where we can fellowship with you through the finished work of Christ. We become part of a people that are going to dwell in eternity with you. Thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.